0: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Justine Bateman, whose book is titled Fame, The Hijacking of Reality. Justine Bateman is an actor, director, writer, a short film, Five Minutes, Began her career as being the character Mallory on the hit TV show Family Ties. And since then has done a lot of acting, including working at Berkeley Rep. 2007, worked on the Writers Guild Strike campaign in Hollywood. Has been a supporter of net neutrality. This particular book is about fame from the inside what it was like to be very famous, what it was like to not be quite as famous over time. You said you started the book by trying to write a different kind of book, which would include a lot of information about why people seek fame.
1: Yeah, when I first started writing it, I had just graduated from UCLA. I went later uh, at 46 as a freshman. I started to take notes in the middle of my sophomore year. And then as soon as I graduated, I could work on it more in a more focused manner. And I did start writing a, an academic version of it. And I got halfway through that. That included my experience and the experience of 17 other famous people that I interviewed and interviews that I transcribed that took a lot more time than I ever imagined. And it has my theories and sociological theories on why people behave the way they do in the public towards the famous at different points in this life cycle and fame that I paint. I do still mention all those theories in this version. But when I got halfway through that, I realized that I needed to write a more raw, visceral version of it. And that's what we have now.
0: Let me ask you about your research. What was the most salient point that you didn't understand before that you found out in your searching about the nature of fame?
1: The reason I started writing the book was when a famous person enters that causes everybody to stop what they're doing and even sort of divest themselves of who they are or how they relate to the people they were actually having dinner with. So it started looking at that. And then I also wanted to look at, it appeared to me that in the, around the year 2000, our society's obsession with fame kind of exploded. So I wanted to see what were the conditions at that time, what was the, you know, and I realized it was this perfect storm of this combination of of things that happened around then. So those were the two reasons that I set in to look at it. And over those first two years at UCLA, I'd taken a lot of notes about, you know, in sociology classes or English classes in particular, not my coding classes obviously, of theories that different writers or sociologists had about human behavior. And I found a lot that were really applicable. And then I have my own theories as well because I've lived through the beginning of fame, the equilibrium, and then the slide and the descent of fame and the post-fame stages. So I had my own theories already because I had lived this and lived it in a very conscious way. So I had sort of taken notes along the way, if you will. So it was nice to combine both the established sociological theories
0: and then my own. What theory did they have that you kind of looked at and said, wow, I get that?
1: Well, um, Irving Goffman, for one, I forget what he calls it, presenting oneself as a performance. You know, it's quite applicable. That, and then the, the Five Features of Reality by Meehan Wood from 1976 about choosing a position and then in your activities with other people, spinning everything that happens to support that position. And that's, that's extremely apl- applicable to now. For example, if there's a political figure whom you've decided is an intelligent person, but there's all kinds of evidence to suggest otherwise. You'll spin all that evidence to support your position that that person's an intelligent creature. Anyway, there's more to that, which in the academic version, I went into much more depth, but people can read about that on their own. Oh, there's another great one by Hugh Brackenridge. Hugh Henry Brackenridge, in his satire, I think it was in the early 1800s, he wrote this, I can't remember the date. He was talking about political figures and he was talking about the reasons why political figures that seem to not have much experience or uh, reason for which people have voted for them. And he likened it to people feeling as if they have a creator's power. If you see somebody who's talented and they they rise rise to the top, the only credit you get for that is that you noticed, right? So you're a fan of, um, I don't know, Led Zeppelin. You know, and it's like, well, that's great that you notice that they're genius musicians. But if we can rise up somebody who has middling talents, then Brackenridge was saying, and he was talking about political figures, but you can apply it to people in the arts. Then the public can point to that and say, I did that.
0: Would that be one of the reasons you think why the Trumpists are so into Trump? Because they feel that they created him on some level. Do you think that could be true?
1: one could certainly apply that to all reality show contestants and hosts in my observation of things i believe that reality shows are the cancer of america i think they've done more damage to this country than than many other things we could point to nowadays and when i say that i mean i believe everyone has a, a specific basket of skills and talents at the same time i believe that some people have yet to develop them And I think when one goes on a reality show, we're not seeing a development of that individual's skills and talents. We're seeing somebody who's just game to go on this show and sort of play. And what happens is the poor behavior, I mean, this is obvious, you know, the poor behavior is rewarded. So not only people are being rewarded for unrevealed skills and talents, but they're also being rewarded for bad behavior. So then you get a whole generation of people, or I don't even have to limit it to a generation. You get a whole society of people that feel that they should be paid for showing up or maybe not showing up and also paid for bad behavior. It's rewarded financially. It's right. rewarded with attention. It's rewarded financially. The American dream that we once had, I feel like is only held now by immigrants. You're going to come here. You're going to work hard. You're going to make a name for yourself. You're going to you know, prove that you're worth being hired you're going to come and you're going to make it. That was replaced a little while ago by the new American dream, which is I'm going to win win the lottery or I'm going to get on a reality show and I'm going to basically be an ass and get rewarded for it or uh, be somebody that is apparently completely consumed with their appearance. And I'll get a number of followers on Instagram that equal a third of the population of the United States and I'll be paid handsomely for sending messages out about particular brands because they're paying me to. And unfortunately, our society, because we place celebrity and fame on such a high pedestal, that you've got large groups of children now. When asked, what do you want to be when you grow up, they just say famous. That's a problem.
0: Because in order to become
1: famous, is that's your only goal. You have to actually not examine
0: your own basket of skills and talents. You might not even get any money out of it either. you yeah. just get fame.
1: That's right. There's this assumption that if you're famous, then therefore, you will have money, you will have love, you will have invitations to every party you ever wanted to go to, you will have sex, you will have everything you ever need, you and you will have no worries. And it really is almost akin to what a lot of people feel heaven is going to be like. And if people believe that fame is heaven on earth. That's a problem because it's not as if they understand what they're even asking
0: for. What I found in talking to people about fame, uh, aside from the celebrity culture, which is problematic, of course, the idea of wanting fame is something that transcends ideology. You'll find people who on the one hand talk about, you know, we want to save the world and they want to be famous for saving the world too. I mean, it it crosses all lines.
1: I do feel it's a healthy practice to do some of that anonymously. To just do it because you're doing it, not because you want to get some recognition for it. I mean, that's just one small example of it, but you know, and the other thing, the thing about fame is like nobody controls fame. If people had any control over fame we were talking about earlier, I guess everybody'd be famous, you know, but you don't, you don't have control over it. You can try to control. It It becomes very obvious when people are trying to control it or trying to bring it upon themselves It'd be a very desperate
0: task. Trusting Bateman, you were 16 when you got hired for Family Ties, and you got it because you had an agent at the time?
1: Yeah, you know, the way you get most acting jobs, you audition, and you know if you're right for the part,
0: you're it. Had you done acting before?
1: Not really. Um, my brother had gotten into acting, and then about a year later, my mom said, why don't you give it a shot just to, to see what would happen? It never crossed my mind before to do any acting, and so I said, sure, and I went with his agent. And within four months, I had two commercials in the, in, the, in the pilot, the first show for Family Ties. So yeah, I didn't have any sort of pre-lap to that at all.
0: And so you got on, you began doing the show. And of course, you did a few shows before it even got on the air, right? Yeah. So at that point, you were still Justine Bateman walking around the street. But the first show airs was it the first show, second show? Do you remember when you began getting those first looks?
1: Um, I don't recall that. It was uh, it was somewhat, you know, slow when you're first starting and people are getting to know the show. But I wasn't really paying attention to that, like you just noticed. Probably, <laughs> you know, you would go to these events though, and and the photographers would know, or people that you know worked at the network knew, and so uh, behavior towards you would start shifting at that point. And then the show really took off, and. Um, First time I realized, not people saying, hey, I like you on that show, but rather that that true frenzy of fame that's out of control. First time I noticed that, I was probably in a mall. And the thing is, like, if you go to the mall by yourself and or you stop moving, you're going to have a problem. Uh, you know, if, if anyone's ever been in a situation where they've got, where they witness to a mob mentality, <laughs> it feels like that. And it feels like you are not going to get any help because even if you're in that situation and you're defined a security guard and, and and say, hey, I feel like this is getting out of control. Can you help me? He would probably do the same thing the other people are doing, which is, oh, you're that girl right. and you are on your own. You're on your own. You're on your own. And if you feel like things are getting out of hand and if you say, I have to go, please move, please get out of my way, then offense is taken. So people start feeling offended that you're doing that. You're not just like, hey, you know, we just want to get a picture. What's the big deal? So you can see how it's a very interesting thing. And so when the fame starts fading or it starts truly descending and all the things in your life that became naturally attached to that fame, because it's a, it's just an element of your reality, just like where you live, what language you speak, what gender you are, all the, what job you have in a regular life, if any of those things were to fall away, it would be a big adjustment for somebody, maybe even traumatic. You know, a family member dies, your house burns down, something like that. So for a really small subset of people, fame is one of those elements in that reality. And when it starts falling away, all those things that naturally attach itself to it, like your self-worth, your self-importance and all that, you have to start unhooking those. So in the same way, nobody can really help you when the fame gets out of hand, unless you're there with somebody who gets it. No one's really there to help you when it starts falling down because nobody really understands what that feels like.
0: You do have a brother, Jason, who became very successful as well. Did he help you or did you help him?
1: Well, Jason and I have had, you know, obviously very different trajectories as far as the fame goes. He had more of a slow burn and he's at the sort of equilibrium moment that I talk about in the life cycle. For me, I'm at the, I'm at the without, which is the end of the life cycle. It's not a matter of did somebody help you or not. But for me, I just personally had to do a lot of writing. And anytime something pushed my buttons, I really had to write and get to the root fear of it, which is, you know, helpful for anything, for anybody who has any buttons pushed. For me, I want to get to a point where I don't have any buttons anymore. You know, I don't want other people's behavior to change. I want my reaction to
0: it to change at KPFA. Okay, so I'm on the radio there, and I walked into the phone room one day. This was after a fun drive, and someone said to me, you were rude to someone. And I was like, what? I wasn't rude to anybody. And it turned out, of course, it was someone who listened to my show who said hello to me, and I might not have even responded, but suddenly they took that personally. For someone on your level at the height of fame, to deal with that almost on a daily basis must have been excruciating.
1: It's, it's tricky. I mean, you know, when you're very famous, you develop some ways to deal with that. You're, you're like hyper aware all the time that that sort of situation can occur. And then on the backside of fame, in the, in the post-fame moment of the cycle, there's a lot of sort of pity or anger, that assumption that you somehow squandered your fame, when in fact you're not in control of it at all. It's going to come and go on its own. As I was able to unhook all of those elements that I mentioned earlier, and I was able to remove these buttons that, you know, I felt like people were able to push. I experienced from then on a great deal of freedom from any of the people pleasing. If somebody now thinks I'm rude, I really don't give a shit. I know in myself that I'm not trying to be rude. If I was trying to be rude, then I owe them an apology just as a person. But if I'm not trying to be rude and they have certain assumptions about what kind of exchange they're going to have with me, that's not my problem.
0: But it took years for you to get to get to the point.
1: So not only was I younger when the fame was very big, but the fame was also very big. So the fame was very big and it's like, it's like getting a, a fire hose of, of fame just sprayed on you every day. And the most that I could do was just try to manage myself within it. I couldn't manage the fame, of course. And you just try to deal the best you can with everyone's coming at you and it's coming at you st- so frequently and so fast that you just sort of holding on.
0: What about the, the supposed positive elements of that kind of fame? One is you have a pet project. You might be able to get it made. Did that ever happen?
1: Well, I was so busy already with the show. Of course, yes, you do get employment opportunities because when you're a performer, you know, a singer or a, um, you know, a musician or a, an actor – or a model, or I mean, anything that the audience is looking at, the higher your fame, the more opportunities you will probably get. Yes. But you can only do so many. For me, I was working eight months out of the year on the show Family Ties. And then when it ended, you also have to make a decision about what types of projects you want to do. Because if everybody's offering you everything in the supermarket, you still have to decide what it is you actually want to take home and eat. I know Jonah Hill, he's done this series of interviews with other people, and one of them was with Michael Sarah. And the quote Michael Sarah had in this one interview was about the fame that he had right after Superbad and how it was a very large amount of fame and there were a lot of people pressuring him to repeat that success. This takes a lot of will, but he had to push against that and just do the projects he wanted to do, just work with the directors he wanted to work with, that's another occasion where you can wind up pissing people off. You're not trying to, but other people are going to be pissed off because they have expectations about you. It's like if you have an old friend, you become very famous, and you have an old friend who's got another friend who's got a charity, and they say to your old friend, hey, why don't you get Bob to come on and do, you know, MC this charity thing? And your old friend goes, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Now you're going to look better to this charity person if you can get bob right so you go to bob and you ask him you know hey i got this thing you know this uh, charity thing would you come and emcee it bob may say i I just can't i don't even have the bandwidth. i'm so busy with stuff but you know it's great to hear from you now the friend could get pissed because now he's going to look like a fool to the charity people right because he assured the charity people yeah no problem we're great friends we're old friends so you get a lot of that too and if you have a good spine If you're younger, it's hard to have that. But
0: as you get older, you can more so manage it properly. At what point did you begin getting people, you know, (laughs) gatekeepers?
1: Yeah, like you have a publicist to deal with all the requests and stuff. It's a bit like running a company. I mean, it's not like, you know, oh, wow, that's so great. It'd be so much fun to have an assistant and then to have a publicist handling all the requests and then, you know, a business manager. It's really just because there's not enough time in the day. You're doing this job all day that doesn't involve any of that stuff. If you're on location and you're working like, you know, 12, 14-hour days, you can't fill your refrigerator. You can't go get toilet paper. I mean, it's just sort of a necessity thing. I mean, and that's work-related. It's I never really saw that as fame-related.
0: How many hours were you putting in, say, in a week working on Family Ties?
1: I don't know. It's hard to remember. I, I just know that, you know, doing that whole show really – Exposed me to a great deal of fame and gave me a really good authoritative foundation on which to, to write the book.
0: You did a couple other shows too. I mean, afterward.
1: Of course, but one of the things I love about the book is that sure. it, it talks about the backside of, of fame. When I say backside, I don't mean the dark side of fame. I I mean when you're looking at the whole life cycle of fame. I mean post peak, what I call the post fame moment. And you're dealing with former fans, whatever, who come at you with, there's like a disappointment or an anger that you are no longer this person that they enjoyed, that you're no longer in that sort of glow that, like I said, a lot of people
0: have put on a high pedestal. You do go into some other areas, one of which is being a woman, dealing with how people perceive you later on in life. And you give a multitude of examples Uh, The time I almost threw something at my TV was when uh, you could see people not applauding when Kim Novak went to the Oscars. This was a stupendous actress, and she'd had lifts, and who cared? She was Kim Novak, and yet the responses were so negative. You're frozen in time as Mallory. That image is frozen.
1: If somebody wants to be frozen in the 80s, it's really none of my business. There's nothing anybody can do about that. But the Kim Novak thing, so this was, you know, like you said, during the Oscars, and she had had quite a bit of plastic surgery, and the response was um, quite negative. And I think it's interesting to contrast that to the reaction recently with uh, Jeffrey Owens. So Jeffrey Owens is an actor, uh, a very experienced Yale-educated actor who had quite a bit of success on The Cosby Show. At the same time, you know, Family Ties, that was a lead-in for Family Ties for many years. And at the time, because the audiences were so concentrated, we got about 55 million people a week at our peak for a few years there. And so not too long ago, somebody took a picture of him at his job at Trader Joe's. Mm-hmm. And the woman who took the picture said, you know, what's the problem? Everybody does it. And she was right. So, you know, in the Kim Novak experience is an example. Everybody ripped on Kim Novak because of what she had done to her face. And frankly, I don't know her, so I, I don't want to assume things of her, but... I'm going to guess that she did do that because people were ripping on her face, on her older face. So ripping on her for her older face and then ripping on her for having done surgical work. So the woman was right in assuming that everybody does this. Everybody takes pictures of somebody like Jeffrey Owens, you know, in the post-fame moment, ha ha, you used to be on a hit TV show and now you've got a regular job just like the rest of us. And then the publications like the Daily Mail who published it were right in assuming that people want to see that. They were right in assuming, because there is a long history of shaming people after they've hit this pinnacle of human existence, which is you know what society's decided it is. But the interesting contrast is that what surprised me with the Jeffrey Owens experience was the support for him, the outcry from the public. Frankly, I found that sort of amusing because that is how they should react. But it is not generally society's position to be outraged by that just like it was not society's position to be outraged at the reaction to Kim Novak, and they should have been. My second book is called Face, and it's about women's faces aging in the public eye and why that makes the public so angry. So I look forward to exploring that more there.
0: Well, one one or two more questions about fame. Then I do want to talk about your current career because that's what you're doing now, and that's sort of more important. Justine Bateman is on the verge of a successful new career.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, it's (laughs) happening. I love it
0: but in terms of fame at this point if you were to become successful to that degree again you'd handle it better you'd handle it differently i certainly wouldn't want it
1: i mean as large and fast as it was back then and you know like i said it was a real challenge to manage yourself within that to have to have anywhere near that level of fame now now that everyone's got a recording device in their pocket now that Everything you do is permanent, really permanent. I mean, it already was back then. You know, you could never really have a rehearsal for, you know, how you wanted to behave in public. You know, everything you did was kind of your final performance or your final version of that particular performance. And the other thing, too, if somebody wanted to say something nasty about you, you almost never heard it back in the 80s and 90s. You just never heard it. How were they going to even get that message to you? They would have to write a fan letter. And, you know, to take the time to actually compose a fan letter and then saying something nasty. And also it was a time, I know it sounds like I'm saying it was a hundred years ago, but you know, eighties and nineties, we weren't so nasty to each other as we are accustomed to being now. I mean, particularly when you look at the fact that the, in my opinion, the presidential seat is empty and will be empty for another couple of years. So we don't have any leadership as far as that. And, you know, The tone of your behavior should come from within yourself. But for a lot of people, they would like to have it modeled for them. And unfortunately, that's not happening right now. So we have that on top of the, you know, there's a lot of great, great things about the internet that I love and about social media that I love. But it also does give people the ability to be quite nasty with no ramifications. And, you know, and I think a lot of that is about what I call um, intimacy through injury. I think a lot of people are really lonely and the fastest way to get intimacy with someone else is to hurt them. And I think that's what's behind a lot of the nasty comments online. So to spin this back around to what I was saying, to be famous right now, to be young and famous right now, to be exposed to the very, very sort of vile and poisonous comments that you can see online. For me, people may have been thinking that or maybe even wanted to tell me that but I never heard it. I was never around them to even hear it. You know, somebody in Milwaukee or Florida, or I don't know, when was I going to come across them? And if I did come across them, would they really look me in the face and say anything like that to me? So I really feel for, you know, anyone in their teens and early twenties, you can't yet have a full understanding of who you are yet, but while you're forming it, you have these kinds of you know really toxic violent emotionally violent comments coming at you that's a that's a it's a difficult thing to manage
0: we don't have that much time and I did want to ask you about the me too movement what was it like for you especially given the role of Mallory back then to deal with what we've now learned was going on in Hollywood
1: well i have to correct you i didn't happen to have the experience that many women have had I've never had any kind of me too experience in the entertainment business. I worked with a lot of really noble men with a lot of integrity and, you know, they're out there and that that was just my experience. The only time any guy ever made a comment to me, you know, in a work situation, I turned to him and just said, "You can never say anything like that to me again." And he said, "Oh, yeah, sorry." And it was just A part of sort of joking around, which is something I'm very accustomed to doing on sets that I, frankly, I enjoy doing on sets, kind of joking around. But there was something about his comment that went too far. And then I told him, you can't ever say that to me again. And he was, you know, extremely apologetic. And to me, it was dealt with, it was dealt with. I don't say that to lessen the impact at all of other women's experiences. I'm just saying that was my personal experience. And all of my, quote, Me Too moments have all happened outside of the entertainment business.
0: Justine Bateman, let's talk about your card career because it's really fascinating. So you were doing a lot of acting, particularly on television. And you did three plays. You were in The Crucible. Uh, You did a play called Lulu for Berkeley Rap way back when. What prompted you to move into the direction of writing and particularly directing?
1: Well, directing I had wanted to do since I was 19, but the timing was never right. And for me, doing anything creative, I don't wait for the timing. I'm just going to make a pile of junk. So I just had to wait on that. The writing, uh, I've always written short stories, poems, things like that. Ever since I was small... And then I started writing scripts around maybe 2004 or something like that and just wrote them and put them away. And then it was during the writer's strike of 2007, 2008 that uh, digital media started exploding. And anyway, that is, I started, you know, I was writing and producing in that space. And then the projects I wanted to do were mm, what I call layered projects, more complex than dig- than traditional media. And they combine tech and entertainment. And I realized that a uh, better way for me to get that done is to get a computer science degree myself. And so Absolutely. once I got out in 2016 from UCLA, I just started doing some of my projects. And so two of the shorts, one's a comedy called Five Minutes that I wrote, directed and was one of the producers. That's a comedy with Rob Benedict. And then Push is a drama that's on there as well. And then I'll be directing a, a script that I wrote called Violet with Olivia Munn and Justin Thoreau in the spring. And then after that, my plan is, we'll see what happens. My plan is to start doing my, my layered projects that combine tech and entertainment.
0: When you're talking about a layered projects, can you be more specific what sure. you're talking about?
1: Sure. So if you think about your phone, if you think about all the apps on your phone, they really use the technology of a touchscreen, right? You can swipe, you can tap, you can uh, go, uh, swipe up and down. There's uh, push buttons, all of this. So almost everything on your phone uses that touchscreen technology except video. Video only uses it to pause and play. What I do is I look at what technology is available, understand its limitations, and also what can be developed for it in the future. And I think of how the absence of a linear technical restriction on a script would change a script. In other words, when you look at what we could do when we were just doing plays years ago before film, you had a technical restriction of, first of all, you have to tell a linear story and you're restricted to this set. Then you had film and it's going to change. You write a play because of that technical restriction. You write a film in a different way because you have looser technical, you, you have don't have as, as many technical restrictions. And then TV, oh, now we can serialize it. So now your scripts change again. So to me, now I can write scripts because of touchscreen and also augmented reality, which are two areas I'm most interested in for my projects. I don't have to write a script in a linear fashion. So instead of it being like a line, I can write a script that's more like a tree. And it's not choose your own adventure, but rather the story is that complex. There are that many branches and avenues to it. And if you watch all of it, then you would get the whole story. If you only watch The Trunk then you only get part of it.
0: So you would be able to, at any given time, say, okay, I'm going to take this reality and go in that direction and take another reality and go in that direction?
1: It could be structured like that. It could be structured based on um, different characters' perspectives. It could be structured based on how much you want to know about any of the individual characters. It depends on the project. If you just look at the tech that's available, then that can inform uh, how you're going to write the script
0: and what you're going to write it about. So in other words, if you're putting it into, say, a live recorded filmed version for, say, a two-hour event, you might have to record 10 or 12 hours worth of material because each different element will take you somewhere else.
1: You can shoot it just like a film. You have to do a lot of planning in your script. But you can shoot, uh, you can have a regular, you know, 18-day independent film shooting schedule, and you are going to have two hours of finished footage. But let's say what you look at when you're looking at it on the iPad, it's just a 15-minute short. If you don't touch it, the touchpad, you're just watching 15 minutes. But if you get curious, you're going to go down tunnels, and once you see all, everything that's down the tunnels, you will have seen the whole two hours.
0: This new film you have, you've got financing, you've got everything set then for
1: it. Yeah, yeah. We're just taking care of some final details, but uh, something I'm very excited about, and this is the film Violet, and it's about that voice in your head that tells you you're a piece of crap, that there's a voice, your thoughts, whatever, where like say you're getting dressed for a party and you go to put on a shirt and the thoughts are don't wear that shirt or no one's going to talk to you. So consciously or unconsciously, you register that and you change your shirt. And the more times you do that, the further away you get from being your true self. It's basically when you make decisions based in fear. And once you realize that that voice or those thoughts are lying to you, then you can start really being yourself. And that, and that's when we first meet
0: the lead character of Violet that Olivia is playing. And you've got another book called Face. And when is that going to come out?
1: I'm starting to put that together now. So I I can't tell you when it's coming out yet. I don't know. It's funny. I was just at an event where I was talking about this book and I and it was mainly women in the audience. And I mentioned this topic of, uh, you know, women's faces aging in the public eye and how it's uh, sort of angers society and how women, it's assumed that women are supposed to feel some sort of shame about their face after 30 or quote unquote, do something about it. And um, man, the response was overwhelming. I mean, I, I feel like... Deep inside, or maybe not even deep inside, maybe superficially also, women are really angry about that, about that sort of assumption in their lives, that the second half of their lives they're supposed to be ashamed of their faces.
0: Well, one thing that's great is that we've got a whole coterie of actresses out there right now in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, people like Jane Fonda, Meryl Streep, Susan Sarandon, the whole list, who are actually going strong, which is something new in Hollywood.
1: It's also interesting to divide that into categories of women who haven't haven't done work on their faces. Because I don't know, I think it's something to think about what causes somebody to cut their face up or inject fillers and I do believe that part of that is to is out of fear. And um, and I know there's some woman that some women that would, you know, argue against that and say, no, I just wanted to do it because I wanted to feel better about myself. I mean for me I see the loose skin on my neck or my face or whatever or you know, the the bags that I have under my eyes becoming deeper. And first of all, I wanted to look like that. I wanted to look because to me, that's a much more interesting look. But also if, if I were to do anything, it would be because I don't want to hear the criticisms anymore. And if that is my reason, that's a piss poor reason for me in my life. That's not how I run my life.
0: Movie you're starting in the spring. What is the name of that again?
1: Uh, it's called Violet and people can go to... I think it's VioletTheFilm.com if they want to read more about it.
0: Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to BookWaves at Hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of BookWaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.